There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode 11 of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we have part one of my interview with Pamela Miller, founder and executive director of Alaska Community Action on Toxics, also known as ACAT. Since starting ACAT in 1997, Pamela has worked in support of indigenous communities in Alaska, seeking cleanup of polluted military, industrial, and resource extraction sites. At the same time, Pam has long been a leader engaged in the creation and implementation of the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants, also known as the POPs Treaty. The treaty has led to global bans on chemicals and chemical classes, including endosulfan, short-chain chlorinated paraffins, and lindane. We began our conversation with ACAT's current work to address PFAS contamination throughout Alaska, the potential use of micronuclear reactors for mining sites, and the ongoing health threat posed by PCBs and other toxic chemicals from abandoned military sites on St. Lawrence Island. We discussed some of Pam's recent work on the POPs Treaty, the health impacts on indigenous communities of the global transport of persistent toxic chemicals to the Arctic, and the critical role of community research in advocating for cleanup and environmental justice for indigenous people. We then talk about Pam's childhood, growing up in Dover, Ohio, and how the nearby presence of Dover Chemical affected her family and influenced her career path. We discuss her education, including making a choice whether to focus on science or music, and learn about her post-college career working as a marine biologist prior to moving out west. It was a real honor to speak with Pamela and to learn more about her life and work. Her breadth of knowledge and experience are remarkable, and her steadfast commitment to addressing toxic pollution and obtaining environmental justice for the indigenous people of Alaska is inspiring. Here's part one of my interview with Pamela Miller, recorded last April. How are you doing? I'm doing well, yeah. Good, good. Saturday, still Saturday morning in Alaska? Yeah, yeah. Had a nice breakfast with my family, so yeah, been a good day so far. Geez, there's so much to talk about, and I, I just really appreciate your continued willingness to do this. It's great to actually have you on here. So I think your legislative session just ended recently in Alaska. Is that right? They extended it. So they oh. <laughs> they have a 90-day session, but they can extend it to 121 days. So they did that. So our bill, the good news is, is our, it makes it more possible to pass our PFAS bill. So okay. we're hanging in there and we have more hearings coming up this week. I, I, I was assuming that an extension of the legislature would almost always be a bad thing. I know. Usually it's a relief after they shut down. Yeah. <laughs> is, is the legislature annual? I mean, is it every year in Alaska? I, I don't actually know. Yes. it The 90 day session, regular session runs from January 
to mid-April, mm-hmm. January 15th, usually to mid-April with the possibility of extending it, but it's in a two-part, um, there's two parts to it. So we're in the second half of the two-year session. I see. And what is what is your PFOS bill do? Well, the PFOS bill does several things. One is it would establish enforceable health protective drinking water standards, which we think is the most important thing. Secondly, it would provide safe water sources to people that are affected by PFAS. And it has a provision to phase out PFAS and firefighting foam. Great. Great. All good things. How's it, how's it looking? How are the prospects? Well, amazingly, I mean, we have this just almost impossible legislature, you know, very, very right-wing, Republican-oriented. However, we've been able to get bipartisan support for this. And so on the Senate side, we have seven co-sponsors, and two of them are Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so it's been very encouraging, actually, to see that kind of bipartisan support. It's So far, it's passed out of the Senate Resources Committee and now is referred to the Senate Finance Committee. And we'll have the second of two hearings in the Senate Finance Committee on Monday, and we anticipate that they'll actually pass it out on Monday. Wow, that's great. Well, maybe we'll come back and talk about that, or we could talk about it now even. You know, it's just really interesting how this particular toxics issues, and I know you've worked on (laughs) dozens of different chemicals and classes of chemicals and issues over the years, and this particular toxic chemical crisis seems to at least have some more significant resonance with a lot of legislators than so many other issues. Yeah, I think that's right. I think in a lot of Alaskans that are affected by PFAS are speaking out and their legislators are hearing from them because we have PFAS contamination from the dispersive use of firefighting foam in every part of Alaska. And at least 10 communities have unsafe levels according even according to the guidance levels of EPA which we know are are set too high. Wow, but, really they're that high. That's wow. Mm-hmm. That's that's quite bad. Is and is how much of that is from military sites or air airport kind of sites or Well, Alaska is such an aviation dependent state mm. and we have so many military bases as well. So Right. So we have contamination really from both airport sites as well as military sites from the far north of Alaska at Utqiagvik, also known as Barrow, down to southeast Alaska and Gustavus. Huh. And they're they're testing all over Alaska for to I mean, they're I guess if they're finding it, they're testing for it. I mean, the states are sort of variable in how much they're testing. So it's interesting if Alaska is doing more testing than maybe a lot of other states. Is that? I think probably less. Unfortunately, Mm. our Department of Environmental Conservation has not been proactive. And every site that they've tested where there has been known or suspected use of PFAS-based firefighting foams, they found it in the groundwater, drinking water sources. But there are so many more tests, so many more places that have not yet been tested where there has been known or suspected use of, of the AFFF PFAS-based firefighting foam. 
So the the state has been largely reactive, right. and the Department of Defense has not stepped up either. So there really needs to be a lot more testing, and not just not just drinking water, but Alaska is also very reliant on, particularly Alaska Native communities, reliant on fish and marine mammals and other other traditional foods, plants and animals right. for their subsistence base. And there's been virtually no testing of, of these traditional foods for PFAS, although we know of several lakes in Alaska that have been close to recreational fishing because of PFAS contamination. Yeah, so that's pretty bad. Bad already. I also saw that there was a bill to streamline permitting for small nuclear reactors. Did I? <laughs> I think I saw that you had testified against that. Yeah, and unfortunately, we've been working to oppose that, of course, because we know that the entire entire cycle of of nuclear development is dangerous from from the mining, which usually happens on indigenous lands to the reprocessing and the intractable problem of nuclear waste disposal. So we've been very actively opposing this this just ill-conceived <laughs> proposal to use micro nuclear reactors in remote areas. And I think really what's behind it is that they that they hope that these micro micro the proponents that is hope that these reactors can be used in remote areas to power um, big mining operations. And touting it also as a solution to the climate crisis and a solution to the energy crisis in rural Alaska. And what's your sense of how likely that is to actually, you know, pass and happen, or at least the, the streamlining of the permitting, whether those reactors are ever actually built or not? Well, it's it's disturbing to see even legislators that we would consider progressive to be buying this idea of micronuclear reactors. And we just think it's really a false solution and that truly renewable energy sources need to replace fossil fuels rather than, than a new generation of micro reactors that are untested. And there are huge safety concerns about, about putting these micro reactors out in remote areas. There are security and safety as well as health issues right. around the micro reactors. But it seems like there's it's gaining some traction because um, the bill just passed, I think, in the Senate from, from Senate resources and on to Senate rules. So hmm. it is gaining traction, unfortunately. Do you know if that issue has come up in any other state yet? I mean, or are they pushing that? Are there other rural states where they're, this is the first I'd heard about it. Yeah. I haven't heard it being promoted in other states. Although I would think that the nuclear industry would promote it in other states that especially have rural, um, more isolated communities and, and mining interests that need some form of power. Right. Do you all get support on this, that issue from any of the national groups or, or not even national groups, but other, you know, regional groups? I don't, I'm not as, uh, just kind of up to speed on the activism around nuclear stuff. I have a colleague at NRDC who does a lot of that work. So I hear from him about some things, but 
I hadn't heard about this. I'm just curious. Yeah, we've reached out um, to the national organization called Beyond Nuclear, and they have a lot of technical expertise and Union of Concerned Scientists. Right. And they have a, a, a very current report that shows these so-called innovative nuclear technologies are, are, are not proven and they're not necessarily safe. So there's quite a lot of evidence that that these things are not all that they're cracked up to be and all that the nuclear industry claims that they are in terms of safety and efficacy, really, and, and economical. I mean, they're, they really don't make economical sense either. Right. And so mining continues to expand, I guess. Is I, I don't, I mean, I'm, you're going to, see how little I know about Alaska, which is embarrassing. But I mean, is the, is the economic profile of the state, has it changed or is it changing, do you think? Or, or, or is it, I mean, it's pretty much natural resources, you know, plus I get tourism, of course. I mean, is, is it pipelines and that sounds like I'm mocking Alaska, which I don't mean to do at all, but I mean, that is, (laughs) no, no, this isn't that kind of podcast, Pam. (laughs) Uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, I just don't know if things are changing in one way or the other, or if it's, if it's, you've been there for about 25 years, I think, if my math is right. So, yeah. So how has Alaska changed? If, I mean, would you say? Well, it's still very much resource extractive dependent. I'd say the oil and gas industry is, is big especially on the North Slope, but also in South Central Alaska and Cook Inlet, there's a lot of development and there's always a lot of pressure for development of oil and gas here in Alaska. And our politicians are very beholden to the oil and gas industry. Also mining is, is, is a a big industry. We have several uh, proposals for developments of, what would be world-class mines for gold, copper, and other other minerals. We have the world's largest lead-zinc mine in the world that's also the U.S. top, has, has the <laughs> dubious distinction of being the U.S. top polluter in the country on, under the toxics release inventory. And so we're constantly fighting back to prevent harmful mining developments because usually it's Alaska native communities who, who, who suffer the most right. from, from these types of developments. So we, we work in concert with Alaska native organizations and tribes to, to stop these harmful developments. And then the military has a huge influence in Alaska because Alaska has always been a place of great strategic importance to the U S military because of the proximity to Russia, the place in the Arctic. And so we have a huge number of military installations. And right now, over 700 formerly used defense sites that have left a legacy of toxic chemicals and toxic waste there. Yeah. And, and so we're, we're also working very hard to get those cleaned up, remediated so that they could be once again safe for local communities who, who live and may fish and hunt nearby. Right. Yeah, it's remarkable how many military sites there are in Alaska. It's more remarkable than me anyway. I I had not really realized the extent of it and obviously the long history 
of um, legacy pollution that goes with that. It's, I mean, does that, unless you're in those communities where they're living with the pollution, either the current or the, or currently active sites or, or military sites or mines or abandoned ones, does it end up being a small fraction of the actual land of Alaska? So the people who are there are facing it, you know, facing the consequences and, and yet in the sort of the larger consciousness of Alaska, is it, you know, a drop in the bucket just because of how, how big everything is and how spread out everything is. Um, Some of these developments like the Prudhoe Bay oil facilities and other, other oil development in on the North slope really is a huge, uh, consumes a huge area Mm -hmm. of, of, um, occupation, I would say, when you consider the roads, the transportation, the, the, the associated facilities, transportation, these are actually really quite large land masses. Yeah. And, and same for, for these large scale mines too. They, again, considering not just the, the area where the ore is mined itself, which can be quite large, but but all the infrastructure and roads that go with it. Right. And I, I, I saw also that you were, um, you're a plaintiff in the case. I don't, I don't actually know the status of it, uh, challenging that, that the Trump administration, I think kind of near the end of the administration changed the rules of the, uh, national environmental planning act, NEPA. That is what NEPA stands for, right? National Environmental Planning Act. Is that is it environmental? Environmental Policy Act. Policy Act. National Environmental <laughs> Policy Act. Okay, that's Environmental Law 101. So that's embarrassing. Um, uh, but you know, so that law, I'm, I know you know this. You know, requires the opportunity for the public to have notice and comment on proposed projects, and requires the people conducting the projects to take a look at the impacts that they're project will have, whether that's a highway or a mine or other things and, and assess whether it can be done less with less harm to the environment or, or the communities. And so that's been a, an, uh, a goal of polluters for a long time to quote unquote streamline that law, meaning taking away the rights of people to challenge projects that could destroy their communities through comment process and litigation and other things. And I, I saw that yeah, you all challenged that and you were one of the lead plaintiffs and then the administration switched and I haven't totally kept up on what the what's happening and whether the new administration is backing away from the Trump policies or doubling down on the Trump policies or do, you know what's the what tell me about that a little bit. I I think they are backing away. Nothing has been formalized yet, but that was that was a huge alarm for us when the Trump administration proposed to roll back the National Environmental Policy Act because it is a place where the public has an opportunity to to make sure that not only the environmental but also human health and community impacts are considered in environmental justice considerations. So to compromise that is a very real threat. And so we we will maintain vigilance on that and make sure that the Biden 
administration reinstates the strength of of that very important act. Yeah. And then were you in Europe? Did you travel to Europe for the last pops for the Stockholm convention meeting or when, when was that? Yeah, those have been really held um, virtually for oh, the I past see. couple of years. Oh, and in fact, the, the most recent meeting of the expert committee of the Stockholm convention, the pops review committee happened in January and it was a hybrid meeting, but those of us from the International Pollutants Elimination Network, this small team of people who participate in those meetings, uh, uh, participated virtually. There is an upcoming meeting of the Conference of, of the Parties of the Stockholm Convention in June, and that will be held in person. I see. We're, we're in Stockholm, or does it not always happen in Stockholm? It usually happens in Geneva, so it would be in Geneva, yeah. Um, the Stockholm Convention was named because it was signed and really established officially in, in Stockholm. I see. Okay, right. So have you been to Geneva many times then? Is that sort of like your second, your home <laughs> exactly. away from home? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, I go there both for the expert committee meetings, although those have been most recently held virtually. And before that, uh, for the past few years in Rome. Mm. So this meeting coming up in June will be held in Geneva. And we've participated from the very beginning of the negotiation of what would become the Stockholm Convention. Really, even though we're a really small organization, we realized very early on that it wasn't enough to work locally, that we were very engaged in stopping pesticide use in schools and addressing military contamination and and harmful developments. But because these chemicals can migrate hundreds and thousands of miles on wind and ocean currents and accumulate in the north and in the Arctic through this process called global distillation, that it was really necessary for us to work internationally because otherwise chemicals are accumulating at dangerous levels in the Arctic and Arctic indigenous peoples have some of the highest levels of these persistent chemicals of any population on earth. So we've been very engaged in the negotiation which established the Arctic as a place of great vulnerability because of this phenomenon of global distillation. We fought very hard to get the precautionary principle as a basis of the convention, protections for vulnerable populations such as women and children. So it's it's the only global legally binding mechanism that can instate bans on chemicals and chemical classes that we have. So it's very important to us. Right. And when was the, when did the understanding of global distillation, which as you were saying is something that basically funnels more of the toxic chemicals to the, is it only to the North or to the North and the South? Does it go to both poles? Both poles. Yes. Yes. I think really the understanding of this phenomenon came about in the mid to late Mm nineties when scientists from Canada were doing studies looking at levels of, of persistent organic pollutants in the breast milk of women. And they, they included a population of Inuit women from the very far North of Canada. And they were including them more as a a background uh, population. They didn't expect to find that these women had levels at five, seven 
or nine times higher than the women of southern Canada that they were measuring in, in southern Quebec. So I think when they published their results, it really created, I think, global concern for the realization that, that the Arctic and Antarctic are mm-hmm. hemispheric sinks for these persistent chemicals. Right. And so you end up finding high levels of all kinds of toxic chemicals in wildlife, for example, well, people <laughs> and wildlife who have not really been anywhere near an actual industrial source or, you know, or whatever production or use of those chemicals in, in a lot of instances, right? Yes. Yes. And we're finding this in our own community-based research that we've done with the Yupik communities of Sivukok, where we've done uh, studies of levels of these chemicals in traditional foods, including fish, marine mammals, as well as in the blood serum of people. And one of the studies that we did in the early 2000s and published in 2005 in the International Journal of Circumpolar Health found that the people of of St. Lawrence Island, the traditional name is Sivokok, had levels of PCBs at five to nine times higher than levels found in lower 48. Some of that, the majority of that is attributed to global transport of PCBs into the North, even though they've been banned for decades now, they're still so persistent. So global transport, and there was an additional and significant contribution from the military site at Northeast Cape because the military left a legacy of hazardous waste there, including PCBs that people continue to be exposed to today. And so we have a long-term community-based research project to to understand the nature and extent of the contamination there at the military site, the formerly used defense site at Northeast Cape, mm-hmm. as well as the influence of persistent organic pollutants. And we'll be going out there in a couple of weeks to measure levels of PCBs and other flame retardants in uh, children, in 300 children of of the island, of the two communities on St. Lawrence Island, and to look at the um, health outcomes that exposure to these chemicals might have, say, on thyroid and neurodevelopment. Right. Northeast Cape is, is that the a place on St. Lawrence Island or is that just the name of the base or is it both? It's both. Uh-huh. Um, back in the 50s, 1950s, at the beginning of the Cold War, because of Alaska's proximity to Russia and the St. Lawrence Island, Sivokok is located only 40 miles from the Chukotkin Peninsula of Russia. So the place was considered very strategically important and considered the eyes and ears of the North, really. There there were radar facilities and big installations and air uh, airstrips that were established out there. There were two uh, defense sites established on Sivokok, one at Northeast Cape and one at Gamble, which is a community on the other side, on the Russian side of, of the island. And these were huge installations with hundreds of personnel, and they operated from the 1950s into the 1970s and then were abandoned. And 
a huge amount of hazardous waste was left there. And PCBs are particularly important because in a place that is cold and remote, they they needed a lot of PCBs in the trans, uh, transformers, electrical equipment, paints. Uh, it was used, PCBs were used quite extensively. Right. So those continue, they, they, and the site was, the sites were never properly cleaned up. So our studies have shown high levels of PCBs in the fish downstream from the site at Northeast Cape, as well as in the people and other um, plants and animals of that region of the island. And it's the folks living there primarily are indigenous communities, right? Yes, entirely. Entirely, uh, yeah. Two, two um, Yupik communities, one at Gamble and one at Savunga. And there used to be a community at Northeast Cape that was displaced by the military. And one of the goals that we share that we're working with as part of our community-based research and advocacy is to be able to um, make sure that that place that used to have a community at Northeast Cape is safe and healthy enough so that the community can be reestablished there. And the military isn't exactly a willing partner or is that, is that not true? I mean, what's the, what levers do you have, if any, to, you know, compel them to clean up what was left there or is it? It's been, it's been very tough. It's been very tough because there's, there's a culture of secrecy mm-hmm. in the military. So it's been very hard to just get basic information about what was used there. And they've been very reluctant to clean it up responsibly. I think they believe that because there's a small population there that doesn't have a lot of political clout, that they can get away with leaving this legacy of hazardous waste, even though, you know, it could mean the devastation of a people and a culture of, of that island. So one of the reasons we established this community-based participatory research project with the tribes there is so that we could train people locally to do their own environmental health research and to answer the questions that they have about the nature and extent of the contamination and how it might be affecting human health to to this day. And so since since 2000, we've had this long-term environmental health and justice research project in collaboration with the tribes that's guided by a working group that includes elders and youth and other knowledgeable people and leaders from the communities to guide the research and they're involved at every step of the way. So we've, we've done measurements of the levels of contaminants in plants, berries, uh, medicinal plants, uh, fish, uh, marine mammals as well. And we're also going back out there this summer to Northeast Cape to do much more extensive testing. And our, our research has shown that despite the remediation that has gone on, that there continue to be high levels of mercury and PCBs and other contaminants. We just published a paper in the Science of the Total Environment that, that shows that there are high levels of mercury and and PCBs in the fish that people rely on in, in a type of fish called Dolly Varden that are part of the traditional diet of the people of St. Lawrence Island. 
And this really turns a lot of, um, I guess, what the military has tried to claim on its head. Uh, they've tried to claim that levels are safe. Um, we've we've cleaned up enough. Uh, we're we're going to do some basic monitored uh, natural. We're going to allow for monitored natural attenuation. That's their right. beloved term um, to just take care of the rest of it. Even though that means that this contamination will persist for decades to come and affect multiple generations of people. Uh, but but our studies have really demonstrated, and we hope that this most recent one especially will show the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry that their conclusions are wrong. And they, they have also, I, I think, aligned with the military to, to claim that, that the site is adequately remediated or cleaned up. But our, our evidence, which is published now, we have, I believe, 14 scientific papers that demonstrate that that their claims are just absolutely wrong. So we hope to to use this as leverage to ensure that the military is held accountable. Right. And what role does the Environmental Protection Agency play in that? Well, that's been very disappointing. So mm -hmm. we understand that the site at Northeast Cape ranked high enough to be listed on the national priorities list or Superfund list, but the EPA has very little role in oversight of the cleanup of these formerly used defense sites unless they're listed on the national priorities list. But the EPA is withholding evidence. We tried to get the information that went into the ranking of Northeast Cape, but they're holding that as a pending decision. And so the EPA has had very little role. It's been quite disappointing because essentially then it's left up to our state department of environmental conservation and the Corps of engineers and the department of environmental conservation has, has really just rubber stamped everything and not tried to challenge the decisions about whether the cleanup is adequate or not. And also, unfortunately, the tribes are not party to the, the records of decisions that make determinations about when a site is clean or not. So that's that's another thing that we're, we're trying to push. The tribe should be a, a formal partner in these decisions. The, the, tribe, the tribes do not agree that these sites have been cleaned up adequately. Is that a change that the, the current administration, the Biden administration, or some future administration, but we're in the present. So is that something that the Biden administration could do as a matter of policy or to say, you know, hey, we've made a commitment to environmental justice and here's one example of that. We're going to make sure that the tribes have a formal role in the process around these sites and these cleanups. Is that Could they do that? They could do that. And and there are already requirements for government to government negotiation and inclusion and consultation with with tribal governments. Right. So the, there is there is already a policy that you would think would require that tribes be be included in the records of decision. So we're we're looking into kind of legal mechanisms to ensure that that happens, as well as organizing a, a now that 
travel is is opening up a little bit. Right. We're organizing a delegation of leaders from Sivukok to travel to Washington D.C. Mm. probably in the fall, app or after the elections, more likely. Right. To, to speak directly with decision makers in the administration, and this is also something that my colleague Vai Wahi, in her position on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council is raising consistently. I see. I think we have a a better chance of achieving that now, and we're going to keep at it until it happens because it's just simply, it's an injustice that the tribes are, the tribes and their interests and concerns about this site have not been respected. Right. So they're, they're facing really the double threat of that local sort of mili- mostly military generated pollution and the global being a global sink basically for all kinds of um, persistent and bioaccumulative toxic chemicals. Yes. Yes. It, it's, it's really the people there describe this as a cancer crisis mm. and we see in our own research really high levels of PCBs and other chemical contaminants, flame retardants, and now uh, PFAS chemicals that people are being exposed to uh, disproportionately in this region of the Arctic. And the other illnesses that have been described by the people there include endocrine effects such as thyroid disease, which is also borne out in our community-based participatory research. And we have papers that that show a, a link between the, the levels of exposure and indicators of thyroid disruption and birth defects, as well as developmental and neurodevelopmental effects, which, which we're looking into right now in the research on, on children. And we think that this, this new, it's not a new project, but this project that we call Protecting Future Generations is the only project of its kind in the Arctic that that looks at the connection between potential exposures to flame retardants and and also legacy chemicals like PCBs on health indicators in children, including neurodevelopment. Right. Uh, Let's just stay on the community-based research projects because, you know, again, I know when I say some of these things, I'm not saying them for your benefit, just so you know. Well, actually, Speaking of that, I would just want to clarify when we were talking earlier about the national priorities list and Superfund, that's the federal program uh, that was established in the 80s to clean up the most hazardous waste sites in the country. There's a process by which sites around the country are sort of nominated or assessed to determine if they're some of the worst of the worst. And then if they are, they get added to what's called the national priorities list under the Superfund law. And then the the federal government is sort of in the lead on seeing that those get cleaned up and holding polluters accountable where that's possible to do and overseeing the cleanups, not to say that they always do a sufficient job with those cleanups. That's actually been a whole other issue, but that's sort of what we were talking about. And then there's a whole kind of category or separate, a fairly separate class of military created sites, which you were talking about. Um, so there's sort of all the private 
private industry, historic legacy, contaminated sites from factories or what have you, and dumps, you know, places where chemicals were dumped. And then there's this whole other category of military sites that have been created all over the country. And there's, I don't know how many there are, there's got to be, I mean, I'm sure there's hundreds and probably more than that, where, you know, the, the common practice, I think it's fair to say, was just as with the private sites was to dump a lot of the toxic pollution just out back in barrels or in trenches or whatever. And so, um, yeah, so that's what we were talking about. And then just also to say the national priorities list, which it used to be about 1200. I'm not actually sure how many are on that right now. It's been a while, but then there's so many other sites throughout the country that don't make the super fun national priorities list, but are still very serious contaminated sites all over the country. So this is, again, I feel like in some ways it's sort of out of the public eye. It's not, I just don't think it's a common knowledge that there's these toxic waste sites, you know, some governed by federal law, some by state law all over the country. And unless you're in that community, you you wouldn't know it, but, but it's, but it's this, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a massive problem all over the country. So I just wanted to go back and clarify, because we were talking about the national priorities list and super fund. And I try and clarify when I start talking in acronyms or things like that. Not that you were doing that. I was doing that. Well, I think there are designated Superfund sites in Alaska, of course, that are, that are both former and active military bases, including two right here in Anchorage mm-hmm. at Elmendorf and Fort Richardson, Elmendorf Air Force Base and Fort Richardson, and then in Fairbanks, Eielson Air Force Base and Fort, Fort Wainwright in the ADAC Naval Air Station, which is largely um, in from past use. And there are a number of other industrial sites also that are on the Superfund list. But for some reason, and I don't know if it's because politicians deem Sivokok as, as a remote location and just a, a you know, small population because there are two communities there of about 800 people, Yupik people, kind of out of sight, out of mind. And for whatever reason, the EPA did evaluate it, but did not move forward in the formal listing of it as a national priorities list. I think also there, there are issues around, you know, just political decisions that have to do with if if a, if if there are sites deemed super fun sites, there's this idea of tainting, and Alaska is also very reliant on uh, commercial fishing mm-hmm. as industry. and some of these sites are located in proximity to major commercial fishing areas too, in the Bering Sea, in the Bristol Bay region, uh, in the Aleutians, so. I, I think the state of Alaska kind of has a vested interest in not not allowing sites that are that are worthy of being on the Superfund list because they are very real threats to human health and the environment because it it it, it tarnishes the mark on yeah, yeah yeah so okay so community based research is a kind of a core environmental justice idea or principle or method whereby people, uh, 
I feel like I'm lecturing or something just to, <laughs> as, as I understand it and I'm no expert, you know, that's the idea is people in communities, wherever they are doing the research with support, maybe from, you know, universities or other people, but, but having a, a central role, not just a little role, but a central role in developing the information about what's going on in their communities as far as exposure and and what contaminants are there and the potential health effects, all the things you were talking about, biomonitoring and environmental monitoring. And I know that's been a core of your work for a very long time. And at least, I mean, a, a while ago, uh, several, I mean, in the 70s, let's just say, or around that time, this was more of a newer idea that, that community-based science, whether, you know, there was a debate, maybe it's still a debate. I don't know whether that's legitimate, whether that's good science, whether that can stand up to the, you know, the, the supposedly more expert science of agencies, for example, like EPA or ATSDR. And that's, that's been sort of a, a, a tension and part of a struggle for a long time. And so I'm interested to hear you talk about it because, because uh, I know it's been a core of your work and you come out of a science background yourself. We're going to get into that in a few minutes, but just, just, just say a little bit about that whole approach and, and, and how it's, I mean, you've already said a little bit about how you are applying it. Yeah. Just say a little more. Sure. Well, we, we work at the request of tribes and other communities who are interested in answering questions that they don't feel have been adequately addressed by, by public agencies. And so in order to do community-based research, it involves a lot of listening so the project, the community-based participatory research project that we've done with the tribes on Sivokok began in 2000, really just a little bit before that, when a former community health aide and elder named Annie Aloha, who I met at a women's conference here in Anchorage in 1997, drew attention to the health problems that she was witnessing and that she associated with the military contamination at Northeast Cape, including cancers and a whole range of health problems that she thought developed after the military came there that were not seen in the people of the island before the military occupation. Right. So we got together and began advocacy to address this and, and came to realize very quickly that the Corps of Engineers and the state of Alaska were not doing the proper investigations to fully characterize the nature and extent of the contamination, nor were they really looking at the, the long-term health consequences, the multi-generational health consequences that were caused by, by the military contamination. And so there was a, there was a real need, a gap of, of information. And they weren't, the biggest tragedy was that, Annie and other elders and knowledgeable people there saw these patterns, saw, saw this. And this is, this is traditional and local knowledge that was largely discounted by, by the agencies that should have taken it seriously. Right. And so we took it seriously and we began working and we were able to get a, a grant from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences early on in, in the year 2000, which was an environmental justice grant to begin to do our own research. And we involved um, at that time, 
the university at Albany, um, Dr. David Carpenter, mm-hmm. who is a world-renowned expert about the health effects of, of PCBs and other contaminants. And we chose him not only because of his scientific expertise and medical knowledge, but because he already had a long and respectful history of working with the Mohawk Nation, which had similar similar environmental health problems because of their uh, location and in proximity to, to industry on the river there. So we actually traveled to, to visit the leaders of the Mohawk Nation and they said, they told us that yes, they, they trained him right. And um, that he is somebody that could be trusted because many scientists are not really interested in doing community-based research. I think that has changed since then, but at that point, um, David Carpenter was was really a, a pioneer. He's that, but but very well respected by indigenous communities that he had worked with. So, right, uh, we began our work with him in the year 2000, and we've um, had NIEHS grants from that point on, really, and now R01 grants that enable us to do five year five-year projects. So we have a current one that's called Protecting Future Generations, and then another NIEHS grant, a research to action grant that allows for research and work toward the restoration of specifically of Northeast Cape and the military site there. Okay. That was very helpful. So now we've (laughs) established some of of a small amount of all that you do on a given day or week. So let's go back. Let's go back to the very beginning. And then, cause I want to kind of trace how you ended up in Alaska and being the founder of, of ACAT. So where, where, where were you born and where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Dover, Ohio in Northeast Ohio. And it is a small town that is surrounded by agriculture. Um, it's right in the heart of Amish territory and and also industry. It turns out, and I think one of the real inspirations for me getting into this work is that there is a chemical corporation there called the Dover Chemical Corporation. Oh, yeah. Dover. Okay, yeah. And they are the world's largest manufacturer of chemicals like short chain and medium chain chlorinated paraffins. And it's now a super fun site. And my mother was a nurse and she herself began witnessing health disparities in our community. And I think that's really one of the reasons I got into this is she was a health investigator. She was a community healer and she caused me to question a lot. She was very feisty and 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 um, kind of didn't accept the status quo. Uh, so so we she she really, I think, helped me see um, that individual people, citizens, can not only question but do something about a situation. And we had health problems, many health problems in our own family. Um, cancers in my immediate family, brothers, sisters-in-law, 
parents, grandparents, there was there was really a cancer cluster in in the community and still is. Mm. So I think that was one of the things that not only motivated me, but inspired me to to go into this work. I I love science. I love biology. I initially started out very much wanting to be a marine biologist and and live and work um, and investigate the ocean and to understand the life of the ocean. But at some point, I realized that science is not enough, that it has to be combined with activism in order to change things. It's not enough just to understand, but to do something about it, to right the wrongs and to right the injustices that have happened. And I saw that injustice in my own community, and I saw the effects of that in my own family and how my mother questioned authority. And so that's I, that's how I came to to get into all this, I, I think, really. Is, is Dover still there? Uh, I, I don't mean is the town still there. Is the company, is the corporation still there? It is. It is. And I'm, I'm investigating that too in my own way. And they continue to manufacture medium chain chlorinated paraffins. Ironically, short chain chlorinated paraffins followed me to the Arctic and when we achieved a global ban on short-chain chlorinated paraffins in 2017, then the industry largely shifted through this process that you know well called regrettable substitution yes. to manufacturing medium-chain chlorinated paraffins as a substitute. And this chemical class is one of the largest production volume chemical classes in the world. And it's, it's a chemical class that most people have never heard of. It's not one of the famous ones, right. but yet it's used extremely widely in plastics as flame retardants, as uh, metal working fluids. So these things are quite pervasive. And now the medium chain chlorinated paraffins have been nominated to the Stockholm Convention. So that's something that we're working on very hard to make sure that that class of chemicals is also included and the long chain chlorinated paraffins just wiping out the whole the whole class because they're they're all very dangerous persistent toxic chemicals that are pervasive in the global environment including the arctic right <laughs> i was just thinking of like if bart simpson grew up to you know like shut down the nuclear plant <laughs> In Springfield, that's like you know, you're, you're going to shut down the Dover chemical plant where you grew up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what did your what did what did your dad do? My dad was a Navy guy. He mm. was in the Navy, and he he was. We think my mom did some investigation of this. He died when I was two years old mm. of cancer, and. We think that his cancer was caused because he served in the Navy in the South Pacific at the time of atmospheric nuclear testing. Uh, and yeah. so that's another, uh, another, I guess, motivation for the work that I do. And, and then he went on to help with his brothers, found a small company called Miller Studio that was kind of an art studio started mm -hmm. by, by my grandparents. And when he got out of the Navy, that's that's what he did until his death. Hmm. Okay. And yeah, so you were you were on this path maybe before you even knew it. And how about brothers and sisters? 
Yeah, so I have four brothers, and um, one has has died of cancer. Um, my the, I'm the youngest of the family, so I'm the youngest sibling. And my next oldest brother, Jerry, died of cancer about six years ago. And my oldest brother, Larry, also had um, uh, throat cancer and thyroid cancer that spread. But he fortunately is is living and surviving and thriving. So um, that's good. But two sisters-in-law, I mean, we, we just have this this pervasiveness of cancer in our family, unfortunately. And, and I personally attribute to the, the Dover Chemical Manufacturing Facility because we lived and my sisters-in-law and other family members lived in the so-called zone of concern. Really? And unwittingly, I mean, we... We we didn't know the the I mean there there would be incidents of you know fires and accidents and things but I don't think we really understand stood at the time the seriousness of the issue so for instance there was a a, a place a U pick strawberry farm there called Becker Farms and I would ride my bike in during the strawberry season with with a wagon when I was a little kid. And we later found out that it was contaminated with dioxins. Had no idea. So um, we really came to understood the uh, um, came to understand this only through the years when it became apparent with the health disparities and the, the knowledge that came forth and EPA began issuing serious violations against this company that just was a bad polluter. They contaminated the streams, the groundwater, the lands surrounding this facility, and they continue to do so. They continue to operate, and they continue to have accidents. They're just they're they're a bad they're a bad actor all around. Is, is a lot of your family still there in Dover? Yes, I still have brothers there and uh, nieces and nephews as mm. well. Tell me about your college education. Well, I I did my bachelor's work in biology at Wittenberg University in uh, Southern Ohio, and in high school I I was in the the band and orchestra and choir. I love music, and at 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 that point when I was not entirely sure it was really between whether I wanted to go into music or, or in, in biology. And I played the French horn. I was actually quite good. <laughs> and my French horn instructor said, well, you really, you're going to have to make a choice. And um, so it ended up being biology, which I loved. And I had some wonderful uh, professors at, Wittenberg University in ornithology and ecology and limnology and and also spent time. Um, there was an exchange program with, with the Duke University Marine Laboratory in North Carolina, so I got to spend semesters there as well, studying marine science and oceanography. And then I went on to uh, get my master's degree in aquatic biology and environmental science from Miami University, also in Ohio. Right. Uh, was it? the time at Duke that got you interested in oceanography or had you, were you already, did you already have that idea even though you were in Ohio the whole time? Yeah. yeah where did this 
kid from Ohio get the idea. Uh, it it was really sparked by an uncle, my my mother's brother, Uncle Joe, who lived in the Florida Keys, and he taught me. We would go to visit him, and he taught me how to snorkel. He taught me so much. He was he was just a a guy who ran a restaurant and small business, but he just he had taken it upon himself to really understand the natural history and the marine environment of the Florida Keys. So he just really sparked a, a, a great interest and um, passion for for the ocean and and the life of the ocean. And so that's I think that's really where it started when I was quite small. I see. Okay. I like the image of you being in the Florida Keys and snorkeling and, you know, getting caught up in that as a kid. Well, in fact, I ended up going back there after, well, during, well, really between and then after I finished my master's work, there's a a place called the Newfound Harbor Marine Institute on Big Pine Key. And I taught there first as an intern and then as a as an instructor, and then did join the Harbor Branch Institution doing research on marine algae there. So I really love marine botany, especially. So I I taught um, marine science, which included helping people of all ages, really from little second graders all the way up through college and and teachers understand the marine environment of the Florida Keys. So we taught coral reef ecology and mangrove and turtle grass ecology. And, and I, I love that. And we, it was boat based. So we, we got to take people out on field trips and snorkeling trips. So we had a lot of wonderful adventures that way. Why did you leave that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, well, again, I thought, yeah, I love teaching and I love sharing the marine environment and introducing the marine environment to people of all ages. But as with science, I, I also felt that teaching teaching wasn't quite enough. And mm-hmm. then from there, I went to Washington State and worked for the Washington Department of Ecology in the Coastal Zone Program and helped to establish the Marine Sanctuary, the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary, and to fight offshore oil and gas development. Because at that point, the Washington and Oregon coasts were up for consideration for uh, oil and gas leasing. So we established the National Marine Sanctuary there as a way to ward off oil and gas development on the beautiful outer coast of, of Washington State and and I, part of my job, which was as technical, technical issues coordinator for oceans issues, was to bring together scientists to help determine what the boundaries of this marine sanctuary were to be and how, how to determine that. And so we determined that based on really ecological, and we also brought the tribes in and traditional knowledge to establish that marine sanctuary to go out to the edge uh, beyond the continental shelf which was which was you know a real ecological unit and would protect not only migratory animals but also the the very sensitive ecosystems of the nearshore environment mm-hmm. 
The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.